All right, so if you are new to Element, like Kevin, uh, welcome. <laughs> there are Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on the communion tables throughout the room. They look like this. On the inside, what you're going to get is kind of some recaps of what we talk about today, some questions to talk to your friends, your family, your gospel community about. On the back, you get the verses we're going through. On the bottom of that, you get a place for notes. If you have a smart device, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. You'll click on More and then Events in Uversion. We will come up by GPS in your smart device, and you will get sermon notes, verses, questions, announcements, everything that goes with today's message. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors at Element. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? And this is Galatians chapter 3, verse 10, and it says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Let's pray. Uh, Father, this morning, we ask that you would teach us what it means to be a people who live in the grace that you have provided and that we would walk out our lives in ways that honor you because we're reflecting the great freedom that we have received. And I ask that in that, you again would be glorified by how we live, as we do get to live in that joy that you bring us. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so we are going through the New Testament book of Galatians. And today's message, I was actually originally going to give to you next week, but we're doing it this week. And then you'll see why when next week comes around. But today, I am going to blast through 23 verses. Yeah, if you've been around Elma, it's like, wow, who replaced you with the doppelganger? The last few weeks, uh, we've been slowing down, looking at some things, and I thought today's verses, we can move a bit quicker. It's not always going to be this way. Don't think this is going to be the new normal. But here's the problem. If you are really geeky, and you're into theology, and you just love to talk and talk about certain things, you will be irritated at how fast I go through these verses. But these verses were either going to be one week or four weeks, and I opted for one. One of our elders, Mike Harmon, tells me that I don't need to always go into minute detail about everything, and I have a hard time not doing that, but he's right. I don't need to do that all the time. And if you're in a gospel community that just loves to talk about all these things that I didn't talk about, this is your Christmas week. You are welcome because you're going to have lots of stuff to discuss on your own. There is so much deep history and theology in these verses, and I'm just doing an overview. And if you want to go deeper, feel free to ask me for commentary recommendations. I'll, I'll give you a few. But if I didn't do an overview, I might lose you. And I told you that one of my friends a couple weeks ago when we talked about justification said he felt like I lost him. I'm going to do my best not to lose you in this. If you have a Bible, open to Galatians chapter 3. Be using one of the ones at Element. That's on page 632. So I'll give you a little bit of background before we get to where we are. But Paul has been talking about how we are saved by God because of his mercy and grace through faith in what Jesus did for us. We call that the good news, which is the gospel, the good news of Jesus coming for us. Now, false teachers came into the area that Paul was at, and they said what you need to do is first believe in Jesus, which is a very good thing that we say that too. First, believe in Jesus. And then they said, second, you need to obey God's law. And then third, you will be saved. And Paul said, no, it doesn't work like that. Paul said, first, you believe in Jesus. So they start in the same place. And then he said, you'll be saved. And then you'll want to follow the ways of God in your life. And that those are two totally different things. Because the false teachers say, faith and obedience go together. And that results in salvation. And Paul says, faith and salvation go together. And that will eventually result in obedience, wanting to follow God. Now, 
this will actually work out in our lives in ways that if we believe we are only saved by our obedience, we are not going to live in the real freedom that God calls us and leads us to. And this isn't really just two different paths of Christianity. These are two different faiths altogether. One is false and one is true. And so the false teachers would say, but it says, the Bible says, obey the law. And the Bible kind of does actually say that. So I'm going to walk through this section with you today. I'm going to thoroughly confuse you as I read it, but then I'm going to help you to understand it. And your light bulbs are going to go, bing. At least I hope they will. I'm a professional. I do this for a living. We should be okay. All right. So uh, Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 10, goes like this. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. I have spent whole messages talking about the righteous will live by faith. This is a thing that actually changed the course of the Reformation in Christianity. Uh, Habakkuk, this little prophet in the Old Testament, looks back all the way to Abraham and says, Abraham, you know, righteousness by faith. Paul picks that up. It goes into the Reformation with Martin Luther, changes the course of the church. Anyway, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterwards does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by a promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So here's the question, Paul asks. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Crystal clear, right? You're like, oh, yeah, I know in the middle of that, you tune me out and I sound like Charlie Brown's parents or teacher going walk, 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 walk. It's like, I don't even know what's happening right now. He's just talking. Okay, so these false teachers come into Galatia and they start to say, this is what God really wants for you. God wants you to follow this thing called the law. Have you ever had somebody say that to you? This is what so-and-so wants. I swear, am I the only one here? I know. You guys were just, did you get all that out when you were greeting a second ago? You have like nothing left for me? Have you ever had somebody say, oh, so-and-so wants it like this? Yes. Okay. So I was doing a funeral a couple years ago for my friend. His name was Trevor Carpenter. Some of you know him. Trevor is a knucklehead. He was prideful. He was arrogant. And he drove a lot of people nuts. But he was saved by the grace of Jesus. And he knew it. And Trevor, at the end of his life, he, he has leukemia. And he knows he is going to die. And so we have this conversation. And he's like, I want you to talk about this. And I'm like, okay. He goes, I am a weenie. I'm like, yes, you are. Yeah, he goes, I, I can be arrogant and boastful. And I said, yes, you can. And he goes, but I love Jesus. 
And I really see in all the places where I run towards that and how God brings me back in grace and size. Okay, so I go and do this funeral. It's in Carpinteria, larger church. His mom and his grandma kind of put this thing together. And here I go, and I get up, and I talk about that. And his mom and his grandma were mad at me. They're still mad at me to this day. It's like, how dare you say this? And I said, this is what Trevor wanted. This is what he wanted from me. If you have ever been part of a wedding or a funeral, it can get frustrating because there's lots of people who will say, I want it like this. I want to do that. These people will want it like this. Well, Paul says, God has set out in black and white what he wants and what he intends from his people. No substitute uh, disputes can alter that that come later. And the point he's making to these Galatian agitators, they're like people at a funeral who are trying to change what this person would have wanted. Now, the agitators, what they want is a ethnic Israel that is true to the law. And if you are a Gentile who wants to come into that, you have to be circumcised and you have to follow the law. And Paul says, no, this is what God wanted. God wanted us to trust in his provision that he sent in the person of Jesus Christ. And these guys say, no, we know what God wanted. God wanted this. And in the end, the problem emerges around this word offspring this word seed in regard to what God wanted. Paul says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. The whole debate around this is that word can be singular or plural. Paul says that word is singular and it means seed and it references Jesus Christ and him alone. The agitators say, no, it's plural, and it refers to the nation of Israel, that the world is going to be saved by how we as the nation of Israel live our lives and fulfill the law, and if other people fill the law, well, then they get to be saved as well. And so this whole thing goes back and forth. And Paul's point, again, no, it's singular. We'll be saved by Jesus, who came and lived the life we should have lived, died the death we should have died, who rose from the grave for us. And so if you break this down practically for us, what, what does this mean? What does Christ's righteousness, when we trust in that, actually mean for us? I don't know what your personality is like, but for me, I feel like I need to make progress on something during the day or I get agitated. At the end of the day, if I look back and I don't see progress on something, I get irritated with myself. Maybe uh, you're artsy and deadlines mean nothing to you. Go with God, Wh whatever, okay? But... <laughs> But for me, when I'm done and I shut down my computer or lock it or head to my house, I need to feel like I made progress. It doesn't mean to completed. I just want some progress. And if I don't feel like I had any progress, I get frustrated. And I feel like I wasted the day, even if I didn't. Now, because that's how I feel about me in my own life, that same foolishness will have a tendency to attach itself to my relationship with God. Last year in the book of James, I told you as we went through that, that James tells us who we are in Christ before he ever talks about how we live, that our doing is meant to come out of our being, who we see ourselves being. But because of how I'm built, if I'm not careful, I will feel like God really, really loves me when I'm producing and producing in a way that I like. Like if I happen at odd times to preach well, to lead well, to share the gospel well, and I feel like I'm doing well and I'm more pleased with me, I feel like then God is more pleased with me. Now, I know that's not the case because that's not the gospel, but in my heart, I truly feel like God is more pleased with me when I am more pleased with me. Anybody? Oh, yeah, okay. By nature of that belief, I think when I'm not doing as well, you know, maybe I'm not leading well, maybe I'm not being disciplined enough, maybe I irritate you or the staff or my wife, and it's not warranted. Uh, you know, I have a tendency to think that Jesus is then not as pleased with me, that God doesn't take joy or delight in me at all in those moments. 
And this is the thing, like I talked about last week, it's a bit of psychosis. And I hope you're following because this is the problem with the Galatians. And this is what Paul is addressing. They are not confident in God's delight over them because they're not really seeing themselves as God sees them, justified in the person of Jesus Christ. And so Paul keeps calling them back to this understanding. We all have a tendency to go off the rails and we will do things that think will make God love us better. This can come in two different ways. First, it can come in being super, super religious or super moral. I'm doing the right things. I'm reading my Bible. I'm praying. I'm following the Ten Commandments. God must really take delight in me now. And it also can happen on the exact opposite side, being super irreligious. You can even call this woke today. Because there are a lot of people today who are super compassionate and irreligious. They look at people who are religious and moral. They think there's something wrong with them when they themselves are also wrong just in a different way. They think that the more caring you are and they define what caring looks like, the more correct terms that you use and they define the correct terms, the more you don't offend anyone and they define what offense is, the more inclusive you are and they define what inclusive is, well, then God or the organization or the universe or whatever it is, takes more delight in you. And you have to understand, the religious and the irreligious, they are doing the exact same thing, even though they throw barbs out of each other and they won't realize they're doing the same thing. We all go off the rails, just like the Galatians. God's delight in us is because of what Jesus Christ did and Him alone. We are trying to earn something that we have already been freely given. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't be better people. Should we be better people? Yes, we should be way better people. I've seen how some of you, I've been flipped off by one of you once when I was driving through a roundabout. I'm not going to say who it was. We should be better people. That's all I'm saying. And I should be too. I'm not saying just you. Although, I haven't flipped anybody off in a roundabout, but felt like it, but I didn't do it. Anyway. We need to have our attention drawn to the text in a way so our hearts keep remembering what the gospel actually is, that we are saved by what Jesus did. And when God sees us, God sees us in Christ. He sees the righteousness of Christ that is laid upon us. That's what God wants. He wants us to trust in the provision that he has made. And any self-centered trajectory is ultimately going to be harmful. And again, these verses can be a lot, but God didn't put anything in the Bible for us to simply just know it to like memorize it, never have it go deep into our hearts and to live it out. We have to learn the things in the scriptures that they need to become a part of us. And so we have to understand what's actually being said so it becomes a part of us. It's not meant to be mere knowledge. One writer says it like this, there is no naked information in the Bible. Totally true. All right, so verse 17 then, this is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by the promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. It's like, okay, how do I bring that into my life? Great, let's talk about this. God comes to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, and he says, through your offspring... Not through your offsprings, not through the nation of Israel, but through your offspring, which is Jesus. He says, Abraham, I am going to give you a son. That son will lead to a son, to a son, to a son, to a son. That will eventually lead to my son, Jesus. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to make you a blessing. So you bless the entire world that is around you. And you will be justified and saved by that coming Messiah and Redeemer. Now, Abraham obviously doesn't understand this. He doesn't get all the connotations of it. Israel didn't understand all the connotations of it until Jesus Jesus actually came. And this is why Paul tells us in Galatians 4.4, 4, which we'll see in a couple weeks, he says, when the fullness of time had come, 
God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those who were under the law. This is how it all works in Jesus. Abraham, your own sins will be washed away and God's favor and blessing will come upon your life by trusting me and the promises that I'm making. God gives it to Abraham by faith alone. The word faith is the word for trust. And I want you to say that, by faith alone. Nah, that's good enough. Okay. <laughs> Which means Abraham believed the promise and it was counted to him as righteousness, just like the text says. That promise was given 430 years before the law ever showed up. 430 years. God granted salvation to Abraham before the law. And Paul's point in the text is the law can't save you. No matter what law you try and follow, no law can save you. God does not save people by behavioral modification and yet I know that's what so many people today say change your life do this and then God will love you and God will say that's not how it works at all because all of a sudden we're thinking I'm living a better life a cleaner life than those other people God must love me more no no that's the psychosis that's not how we're meant to live God granted salvation through faith alone by grace alone in Christ alone before the law ever even existed and Paul's argument in these verses is if you think you can be saved by cleaning up your own life you are calling God a liar ouch ouch so Paul is using legal jargon Matt Chandler gives a great illustration of this he says, let's say you write out your last will and testament, and you say, if my spouse and I die, the car, the house, the money all goes to my oldest child. And then a tragedy happens, and you and your spouse die, and so a judge takes this last will and testament of yours and brings in your oldest child. And they read that, and they say, you get the house, you get the car, you get the money, all of it's coming to you. But then the judge folds that up, and he sets to the side, and he goes, but the only way I'm going to let you have that is if you go to this school, and you get this GPA, and you graduate from this program, then I'll give it to you. So the question is, does the judge have a right to do that? And the answer is no, they don't. They can try, but they're going to get sued because they can't do that because you cannot add to a ratified document. The document speaks for itself. And Paul's argument is this. God already gave the promise of salvation. You'll talk about this in covenant next week. You can't be saved by something that comes 430 years after he already granted salvation in his covenant. So this is why Paul asked the question, why then the law? Why the law? Why even give the law anyway? If you're like people in Paul's audience, people here, the obvious question is that. If I am saved by grace alone, by faith alone, 430 years before the law was given, why do we get the law? And that goes into the whole Old Testament. Why Moses? Why Mount Sinai? Why the Exodus? Why all of these things? Why extend the law? And there are a couple reasons why. There's more. And again, if you're geeky and love to talk about these things in your gospel communities, have a field day with it. But I'm going to give you a couple. First off is this. The law serves mankind because it restrains evil. It restrains evil. It doesn't make you righteous. It restrains evil. So there is a reason today we don't speed too badly. Okay? And notice I don't say we don't speed, right? I say too badly, right? We watch five, nine miles of the speed limit, something like that. There's a reason we don't speed too badly. Is it because we're righteous? No, it's because we're afraid of getting a ticket. That's what the law does. The law is like a cage that keeps a wild animal in check so that it doesn't go out and take everybody out. The law doesn't change the nature of the animal. It just cages it. Being afraid of consequences does not make you righteous. It just restrains you. So let's say you get really mad at somebody and you're like, I'm going to kill them. But then you're like, I'm afraid of lethal injection. So you don't kill them. Does that mean you're righteous? 
No, no, it just restrained you. It's like, I really want them to die, but you watch too many episodes of CSI and you think, I'm going to get caught if I do this, so I'm not going to do that. That doesn't make you righteous. That's called restraint. The law can never make you free. What the law does is it simply restrains evil. Second thing is the law is a diagnostic of our heart. It diagnoses who we are. And almost everyone in this room, if we are brutally honest about ourselves and our lives, we think we are good people. We think, at least compared to everybody else around us, we think everybody else is messed up. If they just lived life or saw things the way that I do, then everything would be better. I know there's a couple people in the world like Eeyore and Winnie the Pooh, I'm sad, I'm terrible, but, but for the most part, everybody in this room thinks we're better than other people around us. And I know that because every time I tell you how terrible we are compared to who Jesus is, you get mad at me and you say, this is going to give us a low self-esteem. You shouldn't talk like this. It's because we think we're better than we are. Okay, so what I'm saying in the midst of this is humanity does not believe that we are terrible because we do not typically compare ourselves to God's standard. We usually compare our strengths to other people's weaknesses. That's what we typically do. And we'll say, well, I know I'm not perfect, but at least I don't gossip like so-and-so, except right now where I'm telling you that so-and-so gossips, right? The, the standard of our goodness seems to become other people's weaknesses and not the holiness of God. And what is the law supposed to do? Well, the law, one person says it like this, is like a hammer on glass to the myth of self-righteousness that so many people walk in. And it's referring to God's law, the Ten Commandments. So let's talk about self-righteousness. Um, I've already said you know, that people from a religious position or a new modern progressive position, both are self-righteous. Usually self-righteousness is a term we want to place on other people that we disagree with. But for those of the woke community, they tend to throw it on religious people. For those in the religious community, they throw it on the, the woke community. And we have to understand we are all self-righteous. Self-righteousness is a belief that works itself out that says, I'm basically better than those people. I see the world in a way that is better than they see the world. And if they would agree with me, then the world would be a better place. For religious people, we tend to live, not say this, but we tend to live this way that says, I don't really need Jesus. I, I, I don't need you. I can do all of these things in my life. I can be super moral and do all the things that Jesus wants me to do. I can really be saved by my own actions. We say, I got this. And when Jesus comes in or a spirit comes in and convicts us about changing and having a bit of humility, we're like, no, I don't need to change. I know how I'm supposed to live. I got it. I got it. On the other side, for irreligious people, they do the same thing. I don't need this God. I can make my own choices. I can serve my own will. I'm more compassionate than that Christian God anyway. I can go after my own desires. And both of those positions are self-righteous. The guy who goes to church every single week, wakes up early and reads his Bible every day, maybe prays or memorizes the scripture, but doesn't love Jesus, doesn't know him, and the doing of those things is self-righteous. The person who goes wherever they want, does whatever they want, has no fear of God, or just as self-righteous. Self-righteousness is a term placed on anyone who does not think they need a righteousness outside of themselves. They are self-righteous, and the law reveals our hearts. And it's meant to crush that self-righteousness and expose us. The law reads everybody the exact same way. We are broken, we are rebellious, and we are sinners in need of grace, falling short of the glory of God. And if we are honest enough, we will all say that because we all end up being self-righteous. That's the diagnosis. And this is why the law doesn't save. But the law is meant to lead us to the one who does save. Third thing why the law was given is this. The law was given so that transgressions might increase. 
Now, in verse 19, Paul says, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. In Romans chapter 5, verse 20, Paul will say the law was given so transgressions would increase. So the law was given so we'd sin more? What? Matt Chandler likes to say, everybody loves God until God says something. So true, right? Meaning nobody has a problem with God until God speaks. And then when he speaks, you see the hardness of our hearts. Like, how dare God tell me these things? And that's what the law does. So I'll just give you a really easy one today in our culture, sex. It's like, <gasps> I'm not going to, okay. No one has a problem with God until someone says what God says about sex, right? One man, one woman, one lifetime in marriage, boom, that's it, that's it. And all of a sudden it's like, what? Who is he to tell me how I can do with my own body? Who is he to say this? That is so outdated and antiquated, how dare he? And what do we just do? We break what God said, we rebel against him, we call him a liar, and that is how the law adds sin on top of sin because we're rebelling even more and calling God a liar. The law brings more sin. Uh, who here has kids or know people with kids? Oh, that should be all of you. If you've been to Element, you know somebody with kids. Okay, that, that's just how it works around here. Now, uh, what happens when a kid is caught in a lie? It's like, my kids don't lie. You got bigger problems, go to therapy. All right, your kids lie. But when you catch a kid in a lie, what's their first response? I didn't, what you, I didn't do it. Uh, you, you know, they're never like, oh, you got me. I'm so sorry. Yes. I totally sinned. I, I'm really sorry. They, they don't do that. They lie. Did you do this? No. Well, well, who did it? Uh, maybe my sister. You didn't write your name on that? No. Well, you know, I, I got a video of you doing it. Well, it's not me. You should Google this video called Batman Did It. There's this little kid, and he's, he's in his mom's bedroom, and he's got her lipstick, and he's written all over this mirror in her bedroom. She goes, what'd you do? It wasn't me. You got the lipstick in? No. And eventually he goes, Batman did it. So Batman snuck in wrote all over it with lipstick, stuck it in his hand, and he's like, I was just standing here, and Batman stuck it in my hand and ran off, and he obviously can't draw, you know, it just, it was, it's, it's really kind of, but it, it's what kids do. The law reveals the wickedness in us, and we rebel against what it reveals, and it turns up more sin. So we see that we are rebellious towards God. That's what the law did to the nation of Israel. God comes in. He brings these people out of Egypt from slavery, takes them to Sinai, gives them a mission and an identity, and they wash their garments, and they wash their skin. Look how clean I am now. And they are then brought down by the law. They thought they were wonderful. Look at all these things, how we washed ourselves and cleansed ourselves before God. Therefore, that's why God's going to save me. And God says, no, it's not because you're amazing that I saved you. I saved you because I'm amazing. That's why I saved you. I'm not rescued you because you're the biggest, strongest, brightest. I don't need you to execute my plan. Although in grace, I will use you to work with me in the world to execute my plan. But I am the God of heavens and the earth, and I've called you to myself. And the law was given to show that God rescued us to himself, that we get to play a part in his glory, not him in ours. See, the law is meant to crush our own self-righteousness. The law is meant to terrify us with its weight because it is too heavy for anybody to bear that doesn't trust in Jesus Christ because it steadily condemns and reminds us of our sickness. One commentator says it like this, the law persistently reveals your failures to live up to God's standard of holiness, but it's not free to terrorize forever. 
Again, verse 19, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until. And if you write in your Bible, you know, circle the word until. Even if you're using the element Bible, fine, write in that. Circle that word until right there. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. That's, that thing right there, the law crushes. It overwhelms us unless and until we trust in the person of Jesus Christ. The law is given a season to expose and reveal our wickedness until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And that is an easy church question. Who is that offspring singular? Jesus. That's who it is. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Verse 21, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The law has free reign to terrorize us and reveal wickedness unless our hope and trust is in the person of Jesus Christ. The result of the gospel, Christ's death, life given for us is the law is no longer free to terrorize you. It is no longer free to haunt you. It is no longer free to crush you because your righteousness is not in yourself. It is not in what you do. It is not in what you have done. It is in what Christ has done for us. By trusting in the provision of Jesus, we are holy and blameless in the sight of God. And that goes to what we talked about two weeks ago, justification. We are justified in God's sight. If you in your life are weighed down by failure, it is time to stop letting anything have power over your life in that way other than Jesus Christ. If you are the opposite and you say things like, I don't need to believe in this nonsense. I have my own self-righteousness. This is all ridiculous. Go ahead. But I will point out to you, you are doing exactly what the text said you would do. Upon hearing this, you would add sin on top of sin. People, when they shake their fist at heaven and say, who is this God to tell me what I can and can't do? Who's the, here's the thing. You don't have a choice in your life whether you're going to glorify God or not. You don't. You will either glorify God by being an object of his mercy and grace. Or you will glorify him by being an object of his just and right judgment upon sin. And even the most hardened heart in this entire world will bring glory to God. They just will. There is no way around it. See, there's this amazing offer that comes on the table for every single person to humbly submit ourselves to what Christ has brought about in his life, death, and resurrection, that we get to be freed from the law. And that means whatever law we have self-imposed or that Old Testament Mosaic law, is there is a weariness that our life can press upon us. And this is why Paul says, all things have been imprisoned under sin. And that includes our religious activities or our own push towards compassion that centers on people and not upon Christ. The Bible says whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. All things are imprisoned under the law that we might find safety and salvation in the arms of Jesus. Matthew 11, 28, 29, Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Whatever your background is, you got to think of that invitation. Are you a mess? I mean, are, but are you not a mess, and your identity is found in something you do? Are you angry? Do you struggle with unforgiveness? Are there people who haven't forgiven you? Are you bitter? Are you frustrated? Are you betrayed? Have you betrayed somebody else? Are you addicted? Are you in a relationship right now that's just falling apart? Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest because Jesus redeems us from all of our curses. 
whether it's our self own, own self-righteous morality or it's the law in the Old Testament, however that takes place, he has come to set us free. Jesus brings us freedom and joy. And I love that Paul, if you've been here for the majority of Galatians at this point, you see how Paul has walked each of these steps to get here to be to the point that says, this is why the law can never save you. He doesn't say the law is bad. He doesn't say the law is evil. It's not. The law could only do what the law was designed to do, though, which is to lead us to Christ. And this is the thing. When we look at the understanding of what Jesus has done for us, it leads us to the place of humility, to laying all of our cares not upon us or other people because we can never carry the burden of any of that. And so we lay it on Christ because he is the one who can carry it. And that teaches us to live again in freedom and joy. There is great grace, there is great hope that comes from knowing who Jesus is in our lives. Again, the law is given for a purpose, but that purpose was never to save us. Our morality will never save us. Only what Jesus did for us and trusting in that provision saves us. And this is why every week at Element, we come to this place of communion where we invite you to come and you break that cracker like Christ's body was broken for us. And you dip that in the wine or the grape juice because it reminds us of his blood that was shed for you and me. Because we cannot pay for our own sin, no matter how righteous or self-righteous we think we are, no matter how many things that, that we do or think we need to get done during the day for God to be put, none of those things save us. Only what Christ has done saves us. And so we trust in his provision. And this is what we remember when we come to communion. Jesus' provision over us and that leads us into great joy and great freedom because our God has sought us to bring us to himself not because we're so amazing and wonderful but because he is because he is God has given a promise of rescue and redemption in the person of Christ and he is good for that promise and if you need prayer this morning right across the way in the lounge and you know, maybe you're falling asleep grab some coffee all the way to get prayer because it's all in the lounge this morning but go over there and pray with somebody during music after the service you have questions about any of this you can ask them some questions but if you want some prayer about this to maybe maybe you're someone who just lives under the burden of all this weight you have placed upon yourself and you don't know how to get out from under that they would love to pray with you about that they would love to walk you through and talk to you about the mercy and the grace of Jesus Christ who has set us free. Uh, we have offering boxes on all the walls in the room. You can give online, but we give simply as part of our worship. We don't pass the plate, but I remind you every week because part of our worship is, is our generosity because our God has been so generous with us, so we then become also a generous people. It's always a response. And I invite you to take those sermon notes and take the questions in there, meet with one another, talk through some of those questions this week. You know, what things have you placed upon your own life that you then take and say, well, this is, must be how God sees me as well. And maybe many of those things are false. And maybe one another can remind each other that, no, this is what the gospel is. This is what grace looks like. This is what it means to live in the hope that God continues to provide because he is good and he is the one that rescues. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we ask that you would teaches and remind us that everything in the scriptures is there for us to learn and we get to see what you want us to know but it's not just for knowledge it's so that we begin to live things out in practical ways and I ask that we begin to live out in practical ways the understanding of the great salvation that we have been offered 
in you. That is not something we attain. It is not something we bring about or make happen. It is something that is freely given by you. And that you, from the very beginning, have been so consistent in your promise to us that it is not by our works. It is not by our doing. It is not by our producing. It is only by your work that has been done for us. And so teach us to live in the grace of that, that there'd be a humility that comes. But there'd also be a weight that is lifted off of our shoulders. So we would live in this joy and freedom that not only glorifies you, but speaks volumes to the world around us of the hope that we have not just received, but we ultimately live in. Teach us to understand the great inheritance that has come to us by what Christ himself has done and that we now get to live in hope. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen. So drop the curtains. Ask God right now, just in the next couple moments, to reveal to you the places and things maybe that you have placed upon yourself that he has never placed upon you a weight and a burden of a law that may not be this Old Testament Mosaic law, but a weight or a burden of a law that you have placed on you that weighs you down and makes you start to view God through a lens that is not true. And that you would begin to see him as he truly is. And there is obviously the the other side of that. You know, there are many things where we just kind of want to brush off what God has said and not listen to him, not trust him enough to live in the ways he calls us to. And even in the ways when we fail in that, that failure in that is not going to crush us when our life is found in Christ. And so ask God, Spirit, to reveal both of those things. God, where am I not listening to you? And where am I putting undue things upon you? And how can I see you as you truly are And you would teach me enough that I would trust you enough to live simply in the ways that you call me to so that you'd be glorified and I get to live in freedom and joy understanding the fullness of the gospel message. And then come and take communion, sing some songs. We'll head out in this world. Hopefully the wind won't knock you over on the way to your car. And that we would have this great joy because we have a great freedom that has been given to us.